Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And I just screwed up the open to this uh, to this show. Ed and I, before we start the show, say Hail Mary together. So Ed and I uh, said the Hail Mary, and then it was my job to open the show, but I said Hail Mary again. And that is, uh, that's how it's going today here at The Pillar there's not wrong with praying twice, J.D. No, no. He who sings prays twice. Perhaps next week I should open with uh, with a few I notes. I know that's a saying. <laughs> but is it true? Well, some sort of uh, some uh, some sort of father of the church. St. Augustine or something. I think it was Augustine who said it. But I just... I, uh, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's that may be true for some people. <laughs> it's not true for me. <laughs> yeah, well. This morning my kids wouldn't get out of bed, so I was singing... Uh, out of their individual beds are singing um, effectively in the hallway, born free as uh, as loudly as I possibly could, but sort of inserting their names into the <laughs> set of alternative lyrics that I was creating. And it had the effect of seeing each of them burrow deeper and deeper under their blankets, but not even consider the possibility of getting out of bed. Huh. I've been exploring the medium of song as a means of soothing the child. Mm. Um, and I mean, we had a, we had a car trip uh, last weekend uh, we drove up to my parents' house, and um, we we attempted to settle the baby. Uh, my wife attempted to play a sort of Disney playlist, I guess, on the assumption that even newborns have an inbuilt muscle memory or affinity for Disney music. Mm-hmm, sure. mm-hmm. The child did not care for it. Um, the high notes appeared to distress her, so uh, I suggest we switch over to Johnny Cash, and she really likes Johnny Cash. Well, I guess, and, uh, I guess it's true what they say. The seaweed is always greener, huh? Yes, and someone else's lake. Um but anyway, I, yeah, I'm I was, that I knew that reference. Oh no, you have no idea how deep track I can go on a particular window of, uh, of classic sure. Disney movies. It's, it's kind of sad. I, it's a running gag between my brothers and I, that the, the three of us can, we can pretty much go line for line on all the Disney films made between 1990 and the year 2000. It's kind so, of, but the baby, the baby didn't want to do that. The baby wanted to see Johnny Cash. Yeah. And I mean, that was fine in the car. And then, you know, she was a little unsettled, uh, late at night, uh, the other evening. And I, so I started singing Johnny Cash songs to her in the hope of, you know, quietening her down and it, and it worked. Um, give me that old time religion played well. Mm. Uh, but then I sort of, you know, as I ran out of sort of reader friendly material, I, I started singing some other Johnny Cash. Folsom Prison Blues did well. I hear the train a coming. Exactly. It's rolling round the bend. But then I, I got onto Cocaine Blues because, I mean, I just, no, just I, don't I was running out of material. And my wife did mm-hmm. not care for me singing that to to our daughter at all. Oh. Um, well, so I need your, to... wife, your wife, like you, your wife is even more English than you. So it's understandable that she might not appreciate sort of the some important customs of American baby raising. Uh, she wasn't opposed per se to me singing, at least I don't think so, or even to Johnny Cash per se. But I think the I, I think the general narrative thrust of the song Cocaine Blues displeased her. Sure, I could see that. Yeah. Hey, Ed, you know who uh, you know who uh, you know who wrote for Johnny Cash? No. Shel Silverstein. Did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah, the guy who, you know, where the sidewalk ends and things like this. I wish I were an elephant. Shel Silverstein wrote uh, wrote a boy named Sue. Did he really? Yeah, a classic. But you didn't know it. I didn't. Shel Silverstein was a relatively accomplished country music singer. A lot of people don't know that, but he wrote for like uh, he wrote a couple of Johnny Cash songs, and he wrote for Loretta Lynn and Brenda Lee, and I don't know some other other country people 
to wait. Maybe I think Waylon Jennings has a, a Shel Silverstein song. Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not what we're here to talk about, much as I wish that it were. Um, what We have actually a lot to talk about this week because there's a lot uh, going on, and we're kind of ramping up now into the season in which a lot goes on. We have the USCCB meeting, the meeting of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops in just two weeks, uh, and some things are happening right now related to that and uh, some other things as well. But before we jump into the news of the day... Um, I, I sort of promised, I, I made a promise to my mom. Um, I, my mom came trick-or-treating with us, and before we went out trick-or-treating, she told me how much she disagreed with the show about something. And I don't know about you, but I have gotten uh, far more feedback than I usually get about our conversations over the past couple of episodes about evangelization. I don't, I don't know if that has been the case for you or not, but I have gotten a lot of feedback from people who say that what we were talking about resonated with them or interested them or that they disagreed or that they didn't agree. And I, I've just continued to hear hear that, which is really great. I mean, it's really cool to to uh, to hear from people who have opinions on the show, even if they don't uh, agree with uh, my opinions, which are correct. Um, but my mom wa- wanted to say that she disagreed because um, I had said, you know, that I, I, one of the points that I had been making is that as we kind of look at the reality of the church in the United States, it, it's not clear to me that there's a sort of widespread perception among even practicing Catholics that our sort of fundamental orientation ought to be by virtue of the magisterium of the church and um, and the commands of Jesus himself to be proclaimers of the gospel, um, to be, uh, as it were, doers of the word, not hearers only, but also to, to, to proclaim the gospel. And, and of course, like, you know, the, the first thing that the Christian should be searching for in his life is intimacy with God and an interior life that, um, um, in which the sacraments are the center and in which he has intimacy with God. But the fruit of that is to be the proclamation of the kingdom, um, both sort of in um, in word and in uh, deeds like the works of mercy. And, you know, one of the things that I've been saying is that I'm not sure that that always is the fundamental orientation with which we evaluate ourselves as Catholics or with which the parish or other Catholic institutions sort of think about themselves as Catholics. And my mom kind of pushed back on that. Um, and I was just wanting to go trick-or-treating, you know, but she wouldn't, uh, she didn't want to go trick-or-treating until we talked about it. Um, but my mom kind of pushed back on that to say that there are indeed many people in the in the life of the church and people who are working in parishes and chanceries and people who are not working in parishes and chanceries who have, you know, who who strongly have the sense, indeed, that the church's fundamental identity is missionary. And I, I, I do, I, I do, I don't, what I don't want to do, what my mom's sort of point raised for me is that what I didn't want to do over the past couple of weeks is suggest that there are, there are not people who are thinking seriously about how the church need, ought, should, can, or is proclaiming the gospel, or how we sort of better all can be drawn into um, the proclamation of the gospel. One of the points that I wanted to make is that I think there are a lot of people who are thinking about those things, and um, one thing that happens sometimes is that because of that, that question of like, how is the church proclaiming the gospel can become overly pro- programmatic, and so it's, it becomes merely sort of the language of strategic plans and sort of preliminaries to the preliminaries to the preliminaries, whereby we th- we think that we have to sort of complete like 18 preliminary steps before we would figure out how it is that the parish um, proclaims the krigma, or we even learn how to sort of proclaim the krigma. And uh, and those kinds of things can sometimes take on um, uh, a sort of a, allow the program to become uh, an impediment to the thing, just because the program becomes onerous and therefore it's not buy-in and, and it becomes an impediment to the thing. But what I didn't want to do was diminish the idea that there are people thinking about that. Uh, I think part of what I wanted to say is that unless um, the church's leaders are thinking about that, unless the pastor uh, of the parish says, um, I am going to um, form and equip people to proclaim the gospel and make this place a place where um, we are fundamentally thinking about 
whether the gospel is being proclaimed and received and um, and whether or not we are sort of making that possible in direct and explicit ways, then that won't happen in the parish. Or the same thing is true for the diocese, and the same thing is true, I think, for a family, too. So I don't, I, I think that, I think what I wanted to say is that unless we have, in whatever our sphere of influence is, a sense that um, the proclamation of the gospel is a central part of our identity and we sort of evaluate our activity based on that, then all of the work for planning and thinking about these things can be can be for not okay <laughs> but oh no no come on <laughs> we're not going to do um, half the podcast on you issuing a correction on no because it's not, your a, correction. You. It's, That's, it's not gonna... a correction because my mom got mad it's that i you know i think she's right that i don't want to sort of be seem to be saying there aren't people paying attention to that but unless people who are in positions of authority view that as a fundamental element of the identity of the church and not in lip service and not programmatically but sort of um in a very concrete and organic way and evaluate the mission of the church according to that and doesn't then those things don't matter, and people who do them get frustrated. And that was the other point that I wanted to make is, um, you know, the, I, I got a I got an email from a from somebody who who wanted to talk about Catholic schools um, as sort of um, uh, potential sort of um, uh, forums for the proclamation of the gospel. You, you know, this person was saying that in their diocese, one of the great frustrations among a lot of practicing Catholics is that. Um, Catholic identity is relatively minimized in the schools, and there there are a lot of non-Catholics who go to their schools, which I think makes these people happy, but there does not seem to be sort of an overt intention to, like, invite parents into any kind of opportunity to, like, hear the gospel and the identity of the church and to be invited into the life of the church in, in you know, sacramental and practical ways. And and this lady was sort of saying, why, why do we have Catholic schools and why do we sort of spend so much money on Catholic schools unless... Um, there, there are conduits of evangelization. And I think that's true. Um, I'm aware at the same time of Catholic schools that like actually are doing that and are really, it, it's cool actually to see what um, Catholic schools are doing when they say we're going to sort of make this place um, missionary in its orientation, not only for the formation of young minds, but for the formation of families and the invitation of families into the mystical body of Christ. And that kind of orientation seems to me to be the necessary transformation of Catholic institutions that the church has been talking about for quite some time, but it exists, you know, only in pockets such that it's it's noteworthy or or um, seems unusual when it's observed. But um, but I do think that's something that you and I need to keep talking about and keep seeing where that exists and figuring how how it exists so that it becomes replicable. Okay. And iron sharpens iron. You yes. want to talk about that? No, I do. But we have a lot of news to talk about this week, and we're 15 <laughs> okay. minutes deep in the podcast issuing basically a recap correction. And it's not a I'm, recap correction, man. Uh, fine. An explanation, a development on. And I, if if we want to do special episodes where all we talk about is the missionary vocation of, the, uh, of all the laity in baptism and what that looks like in the institutional church and how you arrive at an institutional orientation towards evangelization, I'm happy to do that. But well, I'm, I'm also conscious that we've talked a, about this gonna, for the front half of the podcast for the last two episodes. I'm just going to tell you something as a podcast producer, which is not a title I realized I had until right now, a, a host, a podcast host. I'm just going to tell you something as a podcast host. One thing that seems to me to be essential to a successful podcast, Ed, and it seems to me that we would like our podcast to be successful, is when we get lots of listener feedback about a topic, to keep driving that topic, because it seems like the listeners like it. You know, so, I mean, I'm just a man of the people. You know what I'm saying? Okay. I I have not actually had as much (laughs) feedback on this topic as you have. In fact, I haven't had hardly any, but that's not indicative of anything. I, I maybe don't get out as much as you do. I'd also point out that 
the listener feedback in this case came from your mother. No and one listener perhaps. feedback, but I have gotten <laughs> many listener feedbacks. I have gotten many listener feedbacks, my friend. If it, if it was only my ninety percent of the time, the feedback from my mom is like, "Oh, that Ed thinks he's so clever," um, you know. And I don't that that doesn't become the show. My mom, it seems to me, was representative of of a certain segment of our of our Look, I, did, I your um, your mother is absolutely uh, <laughs> right to draw attention to the need to make these points better and more clear and i would happily discuss these issues at hey i'm just trying to give the people what they want i know i know but i think my mom actually it's interesting that you say that because my mom the when she heard that episode she became a paying subscriber to the pillar to the pillar which she had not been before and by the way um i think a lot of you uh after we talked last week about about the mission of the pillar and the work that we're doing and, and the way that we're hoping to do it um, decided to become subscribers to The Pillar. And so I just wanted to thank you for that. And if you thought about last week, if you thought, you know, I really do believe that what these guys are doing is news worth paying for um, and uh, and supporting. Uh, if you thought about doing it last week and you didn't, it's not too late, pillarcatholic.com slash subscribe. But those of you who did do it, uh, I thank you. I, I especially thank you. I, I am deeply grateful. Every, look, um, I, I can, <laughs> look, this is not, I'm not being silly here, but there is no better I mean, I, I do get even, I haven't had emails and messages from people about the stuff we've talked about at evangelization, at least to the volume that you're suggesting that you have, which is fine. I have had other listener feedback on a lot of things in the podcast before. Um, for some reason, my th- people like to write to me about my thoughts on baseball, um, yeah, which is yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. A surprising number of Cardinals fans feel the need to, oh. to message me on different things um, and identify themselves as such. Uh, but I don't hold it against them because as I said, this is a family affair. This this podcast, this little this little community, people like this, people like talking about baseball. I know this little ecclesia uh, of mm-hmm. ours, um, and that's all great. But honestly, I consider there to be no greater vote of confidence and um, support and feedback than when people choose to subscribe, because that shows that you people, you dear listener, really are behind yeah. what we're trying to do, which I really I do desperately appreciate. Um, and yes, everything you're saying about institutional uh, enclaves of strident yeah, evangelization. We got to move on. <sighs> no, go ahead. I was going to say that it kind of goes to the point that we were talking about. Yes, Catholic schools. I would like Catholic schools. As far as I'm concerned, Catholic schools in this country were by and large created, at least as I've understood it, as a historical thing to protect uh, the education of Catholic children from the yeah, big the Blaine, bad. Yeah, the Blaine Amendment stuff, right? Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the big bad yeah. Masonic Protestant public man. schools. Yeah, mm-hmm. public schools, where they were not um, faith neutral. They were they had a very clear faith agenda. Oh, they had was, a they had an explicit sort of confessional identity. Yes, and the confessional identity was anti Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, fine. But having seen now that we're in a different uh, world, and Catholic schools often attract a majority of their students in some places who are not Catholics or not practicing Catholics, because they're just excellent schools and they have mm-hmm. um, a particular atmosphere, which is an inevitable product of an authentic Catholic ethos. And I think all of that's great. And I would love to see them turned into rolling conveyor belts of, um, and I use this word uh, in a non-pejorative sense, but advisedly, indoctrination. I would mm-hmm. like to no, see I, every yeah, child that walks through the door of a Catholic school to be word perfect on their catechism when they come out the end. I think that's great. I think it's a definite opportunity. And I think the reason you see a disparity, and this is what you were saying, some people had said to you and you were thinking about, you know, some Catholic schools seem to do this really well and others don't. But again, where do they do it really well and why? It's because the people involved, the teachers, the school administrators um, have a real understanding of the missionary call to discipleship that we all have. 
And mm-hmm. in the end, it's personal. All, yeah. all of this comes down to each individual person understanding the mandate of their baptism. Indeed. I agree. Now, what was that thing we were talking about before we um, started recording? And you were like, this is good content we should get on the show. Uh, we were talking about uh, the, the state of Nebraska. Were we? We were. We were talking about the state of the state of Nebraska, and more specifically the state of the church in the state of Nebraska, because we are recording this on the afternoon of Thursday, November 4th, and this morning the Attorney General of the state of Nebraska published his report following a three-year investigation into clerical sexual abuse in the state's three dioceses. Um, there's, There's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of interesting things there which we can talk about if you like. And um, there's a lot going on. I mean, I had tuning into the press conference and everything to cover this. I had, I couldn't miss it because we couldn't not cover it. Um, But at the same time, I went to it kind of having almost what I assume a lot of people who have been reading coverage of similar AGs reports from States like Pennsylvania, Colorado, Iowa, you know, uh, you know, at this point since 2018, um, there can be a bit of um, not just AG report fatigue, AG report fatigue, but also scandal fatigue that people are like, you know, really do we like, we get it. It was yeah. bad all over. Do we need another? But of course, you know, that can be the sort of 30,000 foot impression of like, well, yeah, okay. It's, it's, it's another AG report. But of course, if you live in the, any one of Nebraska's three dioceses, it's not just any other um, Report, And that's what I think we were talking about before we started recording was that, you know, this each time this happens, there's it's deeply personal in the backyard of someone. It's yeah. deeply personal in the backyard of some generation of Catholics that this, you know, we we can have and we need to guard against in sort of the the attention that and the reporting that we do on this against a sort of and again, I'm saying this was almost kind of my feeling going into the press conference this morning is like, well, here we go again. And to say, you know, we, we can't have that. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, we have to, you know, it's not to say that we have to sort of revel anew in the gory details of horrible scandal, but that we have to, you know, these things have to be covered and presented and understood with in mind, the good Catholics in the pews of the places who are reading this and knowing that this is about their parish. This is about a priest. They yeah, knew. every, every sort of attorney general's report as it were, or whatever scandal report is indeed like, um, uh, behind them is the souls on both sides of it, right? I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the people on all sides of it and, and the souls on all sides of it. And I, I think I was kind of talking to you. I, I had to, um, I had to recuse myself from our reporting on this. And I'm not even sure how to talk much in this conversation about it because I, uh, worked for the Diocese of Lincoln for, uh, a while before I became a journalist. And, um, and so, you know, I, I worked in the chancery and, and in a senior leadership position in the diocese and therefore had, um, you know, I had to recuse myself from my reporting on on the Attorney General's investigation into the Diocese of Nebraska because, um, you know, I was worked there and I have my own. You know, I, uh, that that gives you your own takes on what's uh, what's true and what's not true and what what would be perceived by the Attorney General and what would not be perceived by the Attorney General. And it gives you your own sort of sense of loyalties and your own sort of sense of probably grudges and resentments too. Um, but one of the things I was sort of pointing out is that my experience in the Diocese of Lincoln is really. Um, was really interesting because Lincoln, having worked there and having lived there, Lincoln is a, a unique diocese in the United States in, in, in a lot of ways. And I think probably a lot of our listeners realize that. But if you don't, Lincoln, Nebraska is a unique diocese in the United States for, for a lot of reasons. And, and one of them is that for a, a period of time, 
um, there were there was a sort of set of Catholics, and it would be premature, I think, or anachronistic to kind of call them trads because it wasn't. That seems to me to sort of bespeak a whole bunch of contemporary things that don't quite fit. But um, th- there was a, a set of Catholics f- for a period of time, and it, and it wasn't sort of liturgical either in that they were attached to the extraordinary form because it was before Sumerum Pontificum, and lots of people weren't attached to the extraordinary form. But there was a, there were a set of of Catholics or a, a culture of Catholics who really kind of looked at the Lincoln Diocese as being a unique place because its bishop was outspoken about um, the church's moral teachings and outspoken about, like, um, the church, the church's doctrinal claims and the church's doctrinal teachings on, on you know, the church, the church's role in, in salvation and the sacramental role in salvation at a time when I think it felt for a lot of Catholics like, you know, in the, in the sort of post-conciliar 90s when it felt for a lot of Catholics like what, you know, they would get doctrinally from a lot of bishops in a lot of places was... Uh, a little bit more felt bannery than that, um, you know, and so for a lot of Catholics who like who I think would be identified as conservative or um, would identify themselves as orthodox in the '90s when they felt like they were not hearing sort of the truth of the church proclaimed in their local place, the diocese of Lincoln really stood out, and even a lot of their vocations were people who came from other places because Lincoln had the reputation of being a particularly kind of conservative or particularly orthodox place. And part of that was, at the time of the sex abuse scandals, part of that was Lincoln going a different way than nearly every other diocese in the United States and not doing all the things that the Dallas Charter said and not doing the audits that the Dallas Charter said and saying instead, you know, the Diocese of Lincoln, Bishop Roscoe, the bishop at the time, saying very directly the Diocese of Lincoln is in compliance with all canonical and civil laws and a real belief in that among a lot of Catholics, you know, not only the clergy, but um, faithful lay Catholics in the diocese who were there in, in a certain way because of what the diocese was or who, who felt a great deal of attachment to what the diocese was. So it's, it's a, it, it was, for me, a really unique and eye-opening place that was unlike any other uh, in the church that I have experienced. And as a consequence of that, I think this report probably is having, well, I know because I've been on the phone with people today, is having, I think, real um, ramifications for people who over the past couple of years have started to have have been hearing you know things about their diocese, but are now seeing them kind of in in stark relief on the attorney general's report. And, and I don't know. Maybe you want to talk about what's in the report again. Yeah, I'm navigating I, I, how to well, talk about so it while the, being reviewed. Yeah, I, I mean, this is uh, I I don't uh, the the AG in Nebraska um, made made reference to other state AGs reports that had come out, and and I think at some points it was very helpful that he did because uh, there there is a pattern to this. There is a pattern to clerical sexual abuse. This is something we've been talking yeah. about and writing about and thinking about for some years now. Um, certainly, I have, uh, as a journalist and prior to that, as a canon lawyer, um, that you know there, there there's a commonality. Like clerical sexual abuse has a has an mo, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. identifiable, and which is why. Or maybe a couple. I would say a couple of sort of patterns that you can identify. Right. You know, but a couple and, of and the sort of behavior. Yeah, yeah, and it's the it's the reason why one of the drums have been banging really hard um, as a canon lawyer now also as a journalist is to say that dioceses can and should have particular law which canonically criminalizes and penalizes in a graduated way um, what we've come to call and understand as grooming behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, not, you know, because that, that, first of all, that's the intention of the legislator and the gaps in penal law in the 1983 code when it was promulgated was that bishops would issue a particular law, but that, that to one side, but also that, and this is something the state AG said um, today and pointed out that it was common across a number of different AG's reports that this, this pattern of problematic behavior is very identifiable in that um, 
because it's identifiable, you can intervene if you have the right policies and processes in place. Now, again, like other places like Pennsylvania, at least in some dioceses from the AG's report there, he said, you know, there, there is a, there's definitely a before time and an after time. Um, and that, that before time and after time, the line of demarcation there very much seems to be sort of 2000, 2002, um, with the sort of spotlight scandal, the Dallas Charter, the USCCB essential norms, all of the sort of procedural and process-related reforms that were brought in in those years, and that they do seem to have had um, an impact. I, I admit, I would like to see more of an exploration, and I think we're just too, we're still too close to it. We're still living, you know, in the sense, in the shadow of spotlight and 2002 and all that um but i but i look forward when the history of the sort of this part of the church is written to unpack how much of the drop-off that we've seen in the last 20 years in terms of instances of clerical abuse uh, new instances that is not historical instances being brought forward which i'll talk about again in a second um how much of this drop-off is due to new processes and procedures brought in in the wake of Spotlight, and how much of this is a generational change um, amongst leadership and clergy, and um, you know what, what currents are, are there underneath driving all this? Because I don't think, looking at the graphs, that I am satisfied that you can simply chalk this up to, oh, we used to have no process and procedure, and now we do. I don't think that's true not least because I don't think that what we had previously was no process or procedure. We had good canon law. It just wasn't applied. Um, so I, I wonder what the other sort of sidecar cultural currents are there that could be unpacked. Um, but relative to the before and after time in Nebraska, you know, you had the same things we saw everywhere else, which is a high watermark of abuse cases or allegations of abuse uh, in the 70s and 80s, particularly, and also to a degree in the 90s, uh, and then a rapid falling away. And, you know, there are, we know, um, particular causes for that. Um, there are particular patterns to the allegations of abuse. The vast, vast majority of the victims were male the vast, vast majority of the victims were males in their teenage years or uh, sort of, you know, early or late childhood years, 11 to 15, give or take. Um, that, you know, it's uh, there, there's there's a commonality to this and it can be examined. It can be unpicked and lessons can be learned from that if we want to learn from them. And I think that's one of the things that has to be borne in mind when looking at the sort of um, – the, the ongoing necessity of covering things like state AG's reports and covering them well and in depth is it's still very much about this is the raw data, if you like, from which the church should be drawing lessons mm -hmm. constantly. And how yeah. can we what can we learn? What can we get better at? What can we know? And the AG, Doug Peterson, was very clear. He said this is, you know, this was not an investigation that was opened to target the Catholic Church. That in 2018, he opened a hotline for people to report historical Which is instances. not – I mean, which is kind of a weird thing to say. When you – any attorney general who opened an investigation in 2018 and then says, well, it wasn't really about the Catholic Church. If that's what he said, that's kind of – I mean, doesn't that seem uh, unreasonable? Of course it was. Well, okay. But here's the thing. Um, at least as I've understood, he opened a statewide hotline for people oh, to talk. Oh, what he means is we wanted to look into – you know, we were very open to looking into more institutions. Yes. Then that's true. But – of course, it was entirely motivated by the Pennsylvania well, report and, you know. Sure. But when the statewide hotline was opened, it was, you know, it was there for anyone who had something to say about mm -hmm. historical allegations, whether it was in 
the Catholic Church, whether it was in schools, whether it was in the Boy Scouts, or, you know, whatever else it may be. And he said, I would, I expected there to be a more diversity of complaint because he said he knows from his work as AG that this stuff does exist. This is not a Catholic problem that, you know, there's, he said, there's no denomination that comes away from this topic clean. Yeah. And he mentioned other public institutions too, yeah. I think, didn't he? Yeah. Schools, sports programs, mm-hmm. things like that. He yeah. said, predators operate and right. they look for places where they can gain exposure to children. So that having been said, but the reason that this particular report ended up being focused exclusively on the Catholic Church is they opened this hotline and they had, uh, hang on, I wrote down the number because it was quite striking. They had 120 complaints or allegations or whatever, people calling the hotline. 120 people called the hotline. 119 of them were talking about the Catholic Church when they called it. So it's, you know, it was not, um, I, I think it's reasonable to say this wasn't targeted in that sense. If that's what happened, then that makes sense. I mean, you know, you can make all sorts of like 2018. Of course, people who had this experience in the Catholic Church would be more likely to come forward and feel more primed to, you know, deal with sort of past trauma and events like this. And as we've known and talked about for a long time that, you know, the sort of psychology of victim survivors is very important for us to understand and learn from and everything else. And that, you know, it can take years, it can take decades, and it can take something to push people to finally be able to talk about these things. And, you know, understanding all of that context is important. But anyway, what's also, I think, significant here is that, um, again, you have headline numbers that are very tragic, very appalling, you know, more than 250 victims, um, and, you know, around 55 to 60, uh, clergy accused. But again, this, that's sort of one sentence, which gives one impression, but you need to again, have the context like this, the, the AG's report goes back to the thirties. So we're dealing with a period of a hundred years now in effect. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one context for it, but also things like, you know, if you dig into the report, more than 90 of the victims identified in the report were the victims of one of two yeah. priests, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, is I'm not saying it makes it any less tragic. I'm just saying it, you know, when we're talking like we talked about the French independent report on the on right. in the French church and like sort of doing the rude math on what they presented. Yeah, like, uh, right. This looks like, you know, unbelievably pervasive into whatever. So here we have a little bit more information and it's not the product of sort of aggregated guesswork of, you know, sampling and it's more, right. you can break it down and you can see that it's like, you know, one or two horrendous predators can do incredible damage. Right. Which is why it's so important to have an eye for what the attorney general called clear grooming behavior. Yeah. um, Which has patterns and to catch it early and to do something about it early and not to, as was done in the past. And again, as the AG's report makes clear, give in to sort of what was very much alive in the church for a number of decades, most especially the 1970s and 80s, to treat this um, as a sort of pastoral, quasi medical problem. by by the bishop to sort of say, well, okay, there's been a number of accusations of clerical sexual abuse against father. We'll send him for training and therapy. And then when he comes back and he is quote unquote cured, we'll put him back in ministry in a new parish. That this is, this was the, the way that things were done in the church in this country in a number of dioceses for a number of decades. And it did untold damage. And that's again, not the situation we're living in now. Yeah. Um, but there's a reason we're not living in that situation now, which is hard lessons have been learned. And we have in to hard keep, way. Hard lessons have been learned hard. In a and, very hard um, way. Yeah, you know. And we have to keep learning them. That's the thing. Well, well what what I, I, I think all that is true, Ed. What I want to know is what do you think 
So one of the things the AG said is that there's very that he he doesn't. It's kind of funny because an attorney general who's the chief prosecutor in a state does an investigation ostensibly oriented towards prosecution, and he said in this case he doesn't see any possibility of prosecution because all the things that he might prosecute have exceeded the statute of limitations or. Um, or there was some, one. He said of all of the stuff they looked at, everything that could have been prosecutable fell outside the statute of limitations part for one case where the victim declined to cooperate or participate in the prosecution. Okay. Um, uh, and in, in a lot of cases, I think some of the people who might have been prosecuted uh, have the good or bad fortune, I guess, depending on where they are now of being dead. Um, but ecclesiastically, it seems like there's the possibility of some significant further consequences from the attorney general's report. I think so, because uh, so when you're dealing with um, the the problem of sexual abuse and you're dealing with the way allegations of sexual abuse become known, uh, you're dealing with really, I'd say, two windows of time mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how the church needs to deal with these things and deal with them in law. The first is obviously when the abuse happens, um, you know, when it's when it's committed and all of that, and that's sort of one window in time and you know, that can be affected again because we're talking about that it can take years or even decades for for the victim to be able to speak about what they went through. Yeah. Um, and so there's there, there's their own particular problem there about, you know, how far back can you go? People die, lack of evidence, all that sort of stuff. Um, but then the second window of time, which is very important to, to consider and look at is, well, what happens when someone does come forward? Yeah. You know, how how are the allegations dealt with once they're made? to the diocesan chancery. What are the processes in place? Are they followed? How are the victims helped and handled? Um, and what steps are taken to take those allegations seriously? And I think in this report, there there were a number of uh, cases that I think raised questions. They raised questions about the processes that were followed. And I think some of these cases straddle uh, the sort of before and after timeline of demarcation of the Dallas Charter. I think there's there are at least one or two, and uh, this is highlighted in the reporting that we have on this, uh, that raise questions about, well, is this really how we were supposed to be dealing with situations like this in the post-2002, post-Dallas Charter era? Um, you know, is so this your really- reporter suge- Your reporting suggested that there could potentially be a Vosestes investigation that comes out of that. I think so. I think there could potentially be two. I, I you know, the, the two cases that I highlighted were um, the now Emeritus Bishop of Lincoln, uh, Bishop Fabian Breskowitz, and also the current Archbishop of um, Omaha, uh, Archbishop mm-hmm. Lucas, um, both for individuals. And again, I'm not accusing them of anything. Right. Because this is purely going off of the source material of the AG's report and their sort of narrative of different um, circumstances, which is substantially drawn from diocesan records that they saw. Yeah. And you can look at them and say, well, this was not handled in a way that is great. And it raises questions about have the lessons of 2002 been learned or were they learned by, for example, 2013, by right. which point most people would agree they should have been. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of whether or not either one of those bishops could end up facing a Vosestes investigation, I don't know. And there's a couple of reasons you don't know, because the first is Vosestes itself is um, canonically a bit of a mixed bag. Um, son of it uh, appears to create new penal law. And that, of course, isn't retroactive. Some appears to clarify existing law. Some of it, uh, it just you know provides a process for investigating things around the issues of bishops. Yeah. Um, but we've seen in this country a number of bishops, uh, and we've talked about this a lot, and we've reported a lot on them. A number of bishops who've been invested under the terms of investigated under the terms of Vosestes in this country uh, for things that were quite historical that yeah. went back a long, long time. 
And it's become the accepted blueprint for when there's a problem with or a question about how a bishop dealt with allegations of sexual misconduct or abuse or abuse of office or power um, in his in his clergy, that that's that seems to be where they go with it is they say, well, there's going to be a vote. Now, in this case, I don't know if either one of these bishops, if that's something Rome's going to take a look at. There's, you know, I, I would be surprised if Rome sort of sua sponte said, well, we've read the Nebraska AD uh, report and we are going to open an investigation sort of on our own initiative. I would be surprised yeah. if the Congregation for Bishops in Rome did that. Um, and absent that, you'd really need someone on the sort of Nebraska end of things to make a complaint. That person would have to have some kind of standing canonically, although it's also possible. And um, I mentioned this in in what I posted this morning on is it's possible either the bishops could self-refer. Um, yeah. And I'll be honest with you, if I saw that, if I saw um, either of these two bishops sort of self-refer uh, the, the, their own cases in the AG's report to the congregation of bishops and say, look, this is this is what they found. This is what they've said. I would like you to investigate me under the terms of Vosestes so that there can be proper accountability yeah. and they can present their own side of events and everything. Cause again, this is one side of, you know, what the AG found. I, I think that would be a sign of real health um, in, in the, in the realm of transparency and Episcopal accountability and sort of living in the aftertime, hopefully of having been through the spotlight, having been through McCarrick to say, you know, we as a church and the church as a hierarchy in this country, isn't afraid of scrutiny, isn't afraid of process isn't afraid of real and due process. Yeah. And I, I think that would be, again, it's probably a long shot, but I, w- I would consider that very, very, very encouraging. Because again, we've now, we're getting a bigger and bigger sample size of how Vos Estes has been applied and used in this country. We've had some bishops forced to resign. And while I'm deeply, deeply, deeply unexcited about forced resignation as a consequence for findings of effective criminality, um, nevertheless, there are bishops who are now no longer in office as a result of Vosestine's investigations, and there are other bishops who've been cleared. And um, the more you use a process and the more you get a diversity of outcome, I, I think the more credible the process becomes. And so, you know, that's – well, that's all I have to say about that at the moment, J.D. It would be, though, Ed, I mean, just, you know, you suggest that Bishop Buskowitz could face a Vosestine's investigation, and um, that would be – you're English, and uh, and so I think you may not, you know, what I was sort of saying about the Lincoln Diocese before and the way in which for a lot of people it was like this significant place where they went for their vocations or, or things like that, or Bishop Bruskowitz really was for a lot of, for, for a swath of Catholics, not, I mean, not for a swath of Catholics, so I think are probably a little bit older than us, because this was kind of like the night, you know, pe- people who were probably, uh, a lo- yeah, who are a little bit older than us, because I think his prominence was really in the 90s, but Bishop Bruskowitz was this figure, I think, who was really looked at, and people I know from working there like, came to the diocese to be a priest because they didn't want to, their mothers didn't want to send them to the seminary in their own diocese and things like that. And so um, the Vos Estes of investigation of Bishop Bruskowitz, if were there to be one, would be, uh, I think, just a, a hugely sort of shocking uh, um, thing for a lot of people. And yet, you know, reading the report, you know, you make the point, look, the, these are places where the diocese did not contact the police. These are places where the diocese did not act. These are places where the diocese received reports and didn't act on them. Well, those are and places it, where someone made an accusation that I would consider to be quite serious and then recanted the accusation to the police in a form and formula looks to me like it was written by a lawyer, in fact, a canon lawyer. Yeah. Um, and so, And then yeah. was subsequently ruled, discovered by the AG to be, no, this was a real complaint. They were basically either encouraged or coerced to recant 
um, a sincere accusation. I, I, I think that's problematic. That sounds like the kind of thing that would be a Vosessi's investigation yeah, because I mean, actually it doesn't prejudge recanting, anything just to say that looks like right, it needs because, a closer look. Because, well, because we know that, you know, Bishop Hepner, who was investigated under Vosessi's, part of the thing, the impetus that led to his Vosessi's investigation was um, the allegation that he coerced someone to recant um, uh, uh, an allegation of abuse. And, uh, and indeed, that's in the report, a similar allegation. So I would not be surprised, but it would be, I think for a lot of people, it would be uh, a very sobering thing. And it's interesting to think about how that sort of fits into um, the, one of the things that I think is true, you know, the attorney general talked about the fact that over the past, uh, you know, 20 years, he sees a market change in the dioceses and these kinds of things. And and, and I think uh, one of the things that I think is true is that the, um, the Dallas charter and the, um, the, the, um, essential norms that came along with it, the the policies and sort of moral agreement policies that came out of the Dallas meeting in 2002, whether they were the right policies or not, um, whether they were sufficient policies or not, and I think we could say that they were not sufficient policies in a lot of serious ways. They sufficient trans- enough that they gave us the McCarrick scandal and we ended right, up having exactly. Estes. Yeah, exactly. And, and many other things. But they did have a transformative effect on culture in that um, – Many of these things that, that that have been just absorbed into the culture of the church, don't be alone with a kid, don't social media with a kid, um, you know, if you sort of, if you see something, say something. Many of these things that have been absorbed into the church's culture uh, have not yet been absorbed into the culture of other institutions. And the church actually can demonstrate the fact that there can be a demonstrable change when those things come into play, even while those laws weren't good. And so, um, you know, that, that Lincoln was this outlier that did not participate in those things. Um, while I think there, I think the attorney general's report said, you know, there was a cultural change. I think it's kind of, there's an interesting comparative there of the kind of the soft effect, not sort of the the direct effect of the laws, but the soft effect of the policies on sort of cultural transformation or expectation right. transformation. Or but something. you see, this is exactly what I was saying earlier about, I don't think it's as simple as policy X and Y were put in place. Therefore, you see this percentage right. drop because, for example, as you say, a lot of these policies were not brought in in the Diocese of Lincoln, yet the drop was still there, right. yeah. that it's a wider cultural thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So it's interesting to look at again. I It's kind of a funny thing for me to talk about because... Because I work there, and and uh, and I'm and I'm not you know not not sure exactly how to navigate that, but um, but it it's it, it is significant um, in a way that I think when you were starting to report on it, I think you thought, well, this re- attorney general's report will be um, we've gotten a bunch of attorney general's reports already, and um, and the fact that there's a and so what's going to be sort of what's going to stand out here, the prospect of a of a Vosessi's investigation kind of potentially coming out of one of these is, I think quite significant beyond the impact of the life of the church. I mean, I think for the, for the church in the United States, I think quite, quite significant. No, at any time of Vosestes investigation or the possibility of a Vosestes investigation emerges, I think that's very important. And again, not because having an investigation means somebody's going to hang at the end of this. On the contrary. Yeah. What the church did not have for decades in this country was due process. Right. Now, for a long time, the lack of due process primarily injured the victims of clerical abuse. I I have said and I have written and I maintain that since 2002, there have been many places where due process has also been lacking and the person who suffered has been the innocent accused, um, which is also a problem. But the you know with Fosestes, the the way you get credibility in your due process is you give everyone due process. You mm-hmm. use the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so for that reason, I, you know, I, I think it is 
interesting and important and significant that there is the possible application of Vosestes here, not for a particular outcome, but because there are questions raised. And that's what the process is for, is to answer yeah. questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of questions, let's talk about uh, something we reported this week that uh, that answers a lot of questions, um, because we reported this week about a draft text of the U.S. Bishop's document on the, on the Eucharist, the document that... Uh, we and bishops and the Washington Post and the New York Times and Catholic media and secular media and, and anybody who pays attention to the church in the United States has been talking about for much of this year because there has been so much up and down and back and forth with this document. Um, you know, uh, it came out of kind of the initial conversations about how the bishops would respond to the inauguration of uh, uh, Biden, who is the second Catholic president, but, uh, you know, sort of vocally and consistently uh, supporting policies that are contrary to the church's doc, you know, teachings on, on, on abortion, uh, how the bishops would respond to that, and, and then kind of broadened into this idea of talking about the Eucharist in a very broad way because of this data that comes out that says, like, you know, Catholics don't know that much about the Eucharist or don't believe that much about the Eucharist. And, uh, and then the sort of travails back and forth. In March, the Holy See uh, tells the bishops, hey, you need to take this one step at a time and in a very in, – in, in a relatively rare intervention into the deliberations of Episcopal conferences, tells the USCCB, although we've had a few lately, tells the USCCB, you know, you need to take this very slowly and you need to have sort of serene and patient conversations with one another and you need to reach real consensus and you need to think about what other Episcopal conferences have been doing and you need to look at – um, you know what what's been said about this before at the level of the Holy See and from other Episcopal conferences and all this. The Holy See sort of says, "Hey, you need to take this slowly in a certain way and look for consensus and be careful about what you're doing." And then, right after that, there is a letter um, put together by a couple of cardinals signed by a number of bishops to Archbishop Gomez, the president of the conference, saying, "Hey, this shouldn't be on the agenda at all at the June meeting." And we find out that that letter, of course, has some issues. There are bishops who say that they were listed as signatories of the letter and they didn't know what they were signing or they didn't agree to be signatories in the first place. And so there's back and forth there. And then we get to the June meeting and the bishops debate and debate and debate and debate and debate whether or not they should even write debate. a document on the, the Eucharist. And Well, first they debated whether or not they should debate it. Whether, first, they debate whether they should debate it. They debate the, the the agenda for the meeting, which usually, you know, everyone just says, I, about whether it should be on the agenda. They debate that for well over an hour, and then they debate the thing itself for two hours. And the debate is fascinating because it's all over the place. There are people on both sides with different sets of talking points. There are people who are for the document saying it's not about Biden, it's about the Eucharist. And then there are people who are for the document saying it's about Biden, and of course it should be about Biden. And then there are people who, you know, are opposing it, saying we shouldn't possibly write anything about Biden. And there are people who are opposing it saying, uh, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, write anything that would seem judgmental about people approaching the Eucharist. And, and then there are bishops who say, we're really busy right now, and maybe we shouldn't do this at all. So the debate is like this really convoluted thing with, a, with um, you know, without sort of clear, consistent one set of talking points from one side and one set of talking points from the other. But the bishops vote with an, o an overwhelming majority that they'll write the document. And the document is interesting because it's become, in a certain way, with all of this back and forth, and then afterwards the drafting, and the drafting committee saying, we're not writing a document about Biden. We're writing a document about the Eucharist, a catechetical and pastoral document about the Eucharist. But the document has this, in in the way that it exists in the secular media and the Catholic media, the Holy See's apparent perspective on it, the USCCB's apparent perspective on it, the perspective of many bishops, the document seems to have this totemic value that is somewhat distinct from the t its text, right? I mean, like, it's sort of like there's a group of people saying, come hell or high water, we're going to pass this document. And a group of people saying, we really, this is the line that we have drawn in the sand, and we really can't be passing this we document. We will not speak coherently We're, on the Eucharist. Right. Uh, apart from, I mean, quite apart from whatever it would say. So when the, the document changes from 
the way that it was originally talked about, which was we need to address, you know, kind of concretely this question of um, uh, what we could call Eucharistic worthiness. Um, when it when that sort of is no longer the the stated topic for most of the supporters of the document, the uh, the opposition to the document, the stated opposition to the document, doesn't sort of just fall away and everybody say, oh, okay, well, we all think we should write a catechetical document on the Eucharist because it's become sort of this, as I say, this like symbolic thing that is more about it seems in certain ways divergent sets of views on a whole bunch of issues among the American Episcopate. And it's kind of like become all enmeshed in the, in this thing about the document in the same way that, you know, if you have an argument with your wife about um, whether or not she actually wants you to be watching, um, what is it that show that you like um, single life Brazil or something like that? Love is blind. Love is blind. Brazilian edition. Well, I hang on. I tried, uh, if we're going to mention this, I, this parenthetical and it's important because I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be accused of offering um, endorsements of things. Uh, my wife and I have watched love is blind. The original series. I attempted to give a go to the sort of new version, which was Brazilian. And I discontinued after two episodes because I got the impression that the Brazilian contestants were intent on being rather freer with their final favors. I um, see. Then, then the, I don't know what that means, but it's fine. I, I don't know what a final they, favor they, is. They, they appeared to have an intention to live in more Uxorio, uh, at an earlier time than I would have. Oh my, well, that's unfortunate. I, I um, thought so. So anyway, I just want to be clear. I'm not endorsing love is blind Brazil. Okay, great. But anyhow, it, when, if you and your wife were to have an argument about Love is Blind Brazil, uh, it would probably, in fact, be about, you know, a whole host of sort of tensions that have built up in the marriage and different perspectives over things sort of manifesting over Love is Blind, but even well beyond when anyone cares about Love is Blind. You know, and there's a way in which the the, the back and forth hours of debate um, and letters back and forth and articles back and forth over this document seem like they're about all these other things, right? They're about this sort of central tension among the bishops. And the bishops keep saying, oh, no, 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 we're not divided. But then there are bishops who then sort of tweet, well, there's, you know, sort of institutional rod inside the USCCB, and I have to help, you know, rot, root it out and those kinds of things. So there is. I mean, I think that anybody who's looking at it can say, no, there are bishops clearly who have different points of view here in, in rather significant ways. And this is the this is the place where they happen to have met, the, the Gettysburg of the whole thing, if you will. Um, and what's kind of unfortunate about that to me is as much as, you know, whatever's true about that stuff, the document as written is a, a pretty good encapsulation and articulation of the church's teaching on the Eucharist. I mean, Ed, you read it. I did read it. Um, and it is. Okay. I have, I have a couple of thoughts. Um, the first is I agree with what you said about, you know, it, it being, it having the sort of totemic status and it, it carrying an important significance, which the text itself would not seem to convey, at least in the, in the draft that we saw mm -hmm. and published. Uh, I have uh, sort of from a political standpoint, those who never wanted this document to exist in the first place because they didn't want the church to address the issue directly of Catholic politicians and everything. Um, I, I just think there's been a lot of bad strategy from them and it has inflamed debate and brought it to this point where it seems to be a sort of visceral confrontation between in a certain way if the guys who didn't want the document to talk about biden had just waited and this they, they might have gotten this document without any of the fight yeah. and could have said well we got the document that we wanted you know we're glad to just teach about the eucharist instead of just allowing it to become this right yeah that um and also the the sort of if you like most pointed passages of the current draft are quotations from a similar document the USCCB issued in 2006 to the attention right. and abiding interest of absolutely no one. Right. Because in the end, this is a 
document of the USCCB. And, you know, without impugning the intentions and hard work of the people who draft these things, the bottom line is they are not terribly widely received once they yeah. are carried over. They tend to get a lot of attention in, you know, USCCB documents are... Um, they're like synods. It seems like the modern version, the contemporary version of a synod is everybody fights over what's going to be written in a document that no one's going to read. Well, I was going to say everybody fights over how to make the sausage, but nobody's going to eat it. Right. Uh, you know, uh, so there's that. Um, the other thing I would say is one of the things that I didn't start out particularly sensitive to or alive to when we first started talking about the possibility of a document on the Eucharist, and that would have been in February, give or take, I think. Um, but have come to believe strongly is that the USCCB really needs a teaching document on the Eucharist uh, in response to all sorts of the cultural currents that you mentioned about Catholics and what they believe about the Eucharist or don't believe or understand or don't understand well. But something that came very clearly out of the debate among the bishops, not just in the June meeting, but you know, in the sort of letter writing that went on between bishops in, mm-hmm. and around the meeting and everything else yeah. is, the bishops themselves don't seem to have a terribly great grasp, or at least not a terribly articulate grasp. Oh, gosh. There were things said at the June meeting about the Eucharistic theology that were just not— Jaw-droppingly the ignorant. Te- yeah, right. That were, that, were, that were not what the Church teaches on, on, we're not on the what sacrament the church, of Eucharist I, I, or, or even were, in I, the neighborhood. I read a letter from a and bishop— not, And not even like J.D.'s take on what the Church says, but just sort of basically catechetical things, Basic right? sacramental yeah. theology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've, you, it's now become a live issue where I have seen and we have reported on bishops debating whether or not there is actually— any kind of meaningful distinction between venial and mortal sin in, you know, it's like, right. I, 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 so that part has grown in urgency in my eyes. And the document does address that. I mean, again, I, you know, I don't want to sound like a jerk here, but I, I did come away from the June meeting, virtually come away from the virtual June meeting, um, feeling like, you know, there, there was a need for a catechetical document on the Eucharist, possibly also one on the sacrament of penance. Um, but it wasn't just the laity who who could benefit from a little closer study of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think we'll get that. I There's not a lot in this text that I would think you can fight over. Right. Um, but I also suspect they will fight over it anyway. They will fight over it anyway. And, and they still have the opportunity to introduce amendments between now and um, the meeting in two weeks. So what's going to happen is that both sides are going to introduce amendments that this is the this is the – this is the vanilla cake, and then both sides are going to try and frost put their flavors into it. Yeah, um, something. So, so there's that. I mean, of course, we do know the USCCB is taking the unusual step of uh, opening their fall assembly with a with an executive session. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, which is very unusual. It's very unusual. Um, yeah. Although, given that they spent an hour squabbling over the agenda in June, maybe they need to right. have a have you a. Know, little... And I have long been an advocate. By the way, it's. Uh, I, I've said this to you before. I don't know if I've said it on the show before, but. You have. Uh, I have long thought that the USCCB would be really well served by taking the cameras out of their meetings. Now, I would still like for reporters to be able to go, but by taking the cameras out of their meetings. So if they're having an executive session, um, you know, that's, that's, that's unquestionably their prerogative. But it is an unusual step, and it comes at the time of this, all this, all of this hubbubaloo about the docu- hullabaloo about the document over the last. Yeah. I, I will be very interested to see what uh, comes out of that executive session. If anything, yeah. I will be interested to see what uh, does or doesn't happen in the rest of the meeting that may be the result of whatever is said and done in the executive session. We will see. Uh, well, I but, suppose we won't. <laughs> I suppose we'll see if we see what happens in the executive session. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I mean, put it this way. If they have executive session, absolutely no one says a word about what goes on in the executive session, which I suppose is possible. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not been my experience of USCCB meetings and executive sessions no, before, no, no, but no. it's possible. Um, but then if they then proceed to debate, quote unquote, the document of the Eucharist, and it just all goes through on the nod and, uh, you know, a slightly amended version is presented by the committee. Um, this is, look, we've had amendments. There have been friendly ones. And here are the friendly ones that we've adopted. Here's the final thing. And everyone just says, yes, no debate. Yeah. Through right. it goes. I think That's, they will have, I think it will be a their hand at what had happened in the executive session. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Um, which, if I may say, I hope doesn't happen. The problem is that the bishops had a very unseemly exchange over several days in June. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that when parents fight in front of the kids, they should make up in front of the kids. And to just yeah, sort of right, say, totally. well, we've all agreed that we shouldn't argue in front of the kids, so we're going to pretend like everything's fine now and that never happened. Um, that resolves nothing in terms of yeah, and it's extremely frustrating for Catholics who are paying attention to this stuff and who care. I mean, like, one of the things that, for all of the people who have, for all of the bishops who have you who have um, decried the buzzword of um, of clericalism, um, th- that extends beyond sexual abuse. Oh yeah, there are a lot of Catholics who pay attention to the life of the Church, who are adults who are formed in the faith, who care about the deliberations of these things and uh, want to be able to um, observe them and understand them and, um, you know, uh, yes. assess them. And no. I'm not just talking about us. In fact, I'm not talking about us They're the, yeah. they're the educated, and, engaged, wise. And good and great looking. And you know what? When they believe in something, they are willing to subscribe <laughs> to it. I was actually planning on going subscribe. there with that, but that's well, <laughs> well played. Well played. Um, no, but we we'll will see. see. I, I hope it doesn't come to that because I think if they do, it will be an opportunity. It's not just an opportunity missed. It will do more harm. It's an it's another way of doing harm. I think you're right. It is absolutely a clericalist mentality that says um, the faithful have no right to to hear us resolve very public disputes that we've been having. I think it's it, – frankly, I think it's insulting to the intelligence of the laity when bishops pretend like they mm-hmm. are united when we all know that they are – not at all over a particular Not at things. all, right? And anyone who reads church history isn't scandalized by that. It's the ordinary course right. of things in life. And to sort of church, say, so oh, no, we, you know, we yeah. all have broad consensus on the need for a right. – yeah, no, it, come on. It, no one buys that. Um, and, and, I mean, again, it just it's insulting to the intelligence of the faithful. And that it, – it is a way – you know, you said that this is a kind of clericalism, and it absolutely is. It's that kind of clericalism, that sort of paternalistic, um, condescending – uh, way of treating people uh, is another way in which faith in the or trust, I should say, in the in the authority of the hierarchy is eroded. Because if people feel like you're not it's being eroded, taken yeah. seriously mm-hmm. by your leaders, then they don't tend to trust those leaders. So I hope that's yeah, not what happens. Answer. I hope that what I really would like to see, having said negative things now, I to to cap off with a positive note for myself. What I hope we could see is if we could see bishops who have publicly disagreed with one another. Um, over issues like this, have a mature and fraternal exchange in public, which makes clear that they are, in fact, brothers who love and want the same things for the church, even if they disagree over certain things. That would be nice. 
Speaking of which, one of the things that I'm told that I think is just cool is that um, there are a few more periods of common prayer scheduled for the bishops at this meeting than have been in the past. And there was a bishop who a couple of weeks ago, I think, accidentally, yeah, accidentally tweeted, tweeted out, out the sign-up sheet for the yeah, holy the hour. sign-up sheet for, for, yeah, for adoration. There will be perpetual adoration during the meeting. And a bishop, I think, accidentally tweeted out the sign-up sheet for bishops to sign up for, for adoration. So that's good a good reminder that there will be adoration. And, yeah, I mean, I think – look, to – to to go back to the analogy of, an, of a marriage, um, it is unrealistic to expect that two people who are um, wedded to each other will always agree um, or will even like think well of the other person's opinions. But what is not unrealistic is to think that um, people who are wedded to each other will find a way to um, talk through conflict, not even reaching sort of um, unanimity, but talk through con- conflict in a way that uh, hears th- that allows each person to be heard, and then, however, the decision is made. The and it's fraternal made. and mature and, that, and loving. And what happens right, if you don't get that is you end up sublimating well, right. those diff- disagreements into arguments about television or right. documents on and the then Eucharist. You're having a fight, right? And then you're having a fight about the document when the document is, yeah, uh, yeah. Then you're then it becomes this other thing. So um, far better, you know. I, Back in uh, 2018, when the Holy See said that the bishops weren't allowed to vote on their plans for addressing clerical sexual abuse in the church, you remember that, um, there was like a big hole in the agenda. And because there was a big hole in the agenda— It was open um, mic night, and it was uh, fabulous. Yeah, Cardinal DiNardo basically just said like, well, okay, I guess we're going to have open mic night. Um, and uh, and they it did. It was beautiful. And so bishops were allowed to sort of get up and say what their experience was of— the McCarrick scandal, which was emerging, and Pennsylvania Grand Jury, and these kinds of things, and what they were doing, and what they were concerned about, and what they were worried about, and— and it was one of the most honest exchanges among bishops that I've ever – and there were certainly, you know, disagreeing viewpoints expressed. But it was one of, the, like, the most human things because usually at the meeting, like, the same eight guys get up every single time over and over and over again. Episcopal whack-a-mole. Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and it's like this bishop, this bishop, this bishop, this bishop over and over and over again. And um, at that meeting, it was a much broader sort of cross-section and with much more candor and it was cool. Uh, really cool, and it felt, I mean, dare I say, to have a certain kind of synodality to it. It did, actually. I, I, yeah, that was, right? I found that uh, it was a deeply affecting session to be able to listen to. Yes, I, I can remember some of the things said by of some the of the Lord bishops. there. Yeah, I, yeah. And, and also the, the, the fraternity among the bishops, even as they were making points and arguing for different things um, across a range of, you know, how do we deal with the situation we find ourselves in? The, the fraternity and the personal um, openness of all of them I thought was palpable. And it just shows they yeah. can do it when they want to. Right. And it was the candor and it was the willingness to be honest and not to sort of – no one could say everything's fine right then because, um, you know, hell, we can all read. No one could say that everything was fine right then. And because no one could say that everything was fine, it was a, there was a freedom to say what wasn't fine. And because and they had cool. nothing to vote on and they had no right, action right. to drive it to, they couldn't the, – everything didn't have to be sort of sublimated into this, you know, this amendment or this document. Or they could just say, well, this is what I think. And, you know, yeah, I don't but it would have, be cool to see that even when there's going to be something to vote on. I mean, it could be yeah. – could certainly be done. I would love it yeah. if there was just a an open mic session every USCCB meeting where they just said we're going to have two hours where, you know, business from the floor. What do people want to talk and about? And then you know what would be cool too? You know how, like, at a city council meeting, there's, like, citizens question time where, like, people can get oh, in line no. to say what they want to this? That, uh, Ed, now that's the part that I want to see. Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> okay, well, we will uh, be there, um, and uh, and we shall, we shall see. We shall see. Now, yeah. J.D., 
Um, as I mentioned, I took a little road trip last weekend, and I haven't taken the return trip yet. I am still, uh, I am in uh, someplace near and dear to your heart. You're in the Garden State, aren't you? Uh, I am. I wish you hadn't called it that, but for reasons that will be what? clear in a second. Uh, I am in <laughs> I am in the state of New Jersey. Uh, yeah. I, I have never lived here. I never will live here. But your parents live but there, I so it's kind of like... in the state of New Jersey, yeah. and as such, I try to open my heart to this, your native land, as much as I can. Good, but that's smart. you, you are a native son. I'm a Jersey guy. I mean, you know... You I'm, are a Jersey I'm, boy. Um, I mean, you know, I've got... I was just just getting ready to uh, to uh, gym tan laundry, as they say on Jersey Shore. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I thought it might be fun to, to play a little game, a Jersey-themed game, uh, and, and test your New Jersey vocabulary. Hey, what do you know about New Jersey? Exactly. I just okay. thought we... What's the game called? Uh, this is called uh, JD's Quiz About New Jersey. I, I didn't give it a pithy title. I'm sorry. But JD's it's loosely quiz about New, Freaking Quiz About New Jersey. Well, I, you know, the people, as you are making clear, people do talk funny around here. Um, uh, yeah, it sounds normal to me. I know. But they do talk... And there's a sort of insular vocabulary to the state. Um, I think in large part to try and draw false differentiation culturally between the people who live on the island across the water. Um, but we'll see. Oh, New Yorkers have nothing in common with people from New Jersey. The thing they have in common is they think the Except rest of the, the country net. draws we a difference. We used to have them and they have them now. Yeah, the only thing that people from New York and New Jersey have in common is that they they don't understand the rest of the country just lumps them together. But anyway, that, <laughs> to to prove the point that it is a distinct culture here, J.D. And, and there are actually a number of distinct cultures within New Jersey, but I'm not going to press that. Well, that maybe we will. Well, maybe we might get into that. Um, so I, so, so would you like to play this little game I've, I've devised? I think I've made clear that I'm ready. So why don't okay. you go the freak ahead? Well, so nicknames are very important in this, in this state I have noticed. Um, and, okay. and you, you rightly, I was going to ask you what is the official nickname of your homeland, but you've already correctly identified it as the garden state, um, which I admit being mystified by, I can only assume this is some kind of irony because, you uh, know, New Jersey is, I think the third largest producer of cranberries in the country. Cranberries grow underwater, so that's not in any way yeah, related to gardens. South Jersey, they just, I mean, what are you going to do with South Jersey? It's flooded. But I think also, I think also, um, but there's mountains upstate. Newark is a post industrial well, concrete wasteland. Southern Jersey is growing cranberries underwater. So where are the gardens, JD? Where are they? <laughs> I don't, I don't see them anywhere. <laughs> there are no gardens in this place. Well, I know Granite I, State I might... was taken, but I've seen a lot of the rocks. So I, it's, Anyway, it's, but that's not your question, J.D., because you already knew that it's called the Garden State. Um, would you like to know why it's called the Garden State? I, th- I thought I just asked. No, I actually don't know why. I think it has to do with the cranberries. I don't... But the cranberries grow underwater. They don't grow in gardens. That doesn't make any sense. Anyway, J.D., people in New Jersey make much of their roads. You, They are terrible, dangerous drivers here in the state of New Jersey, and they like their mm-hmm. highways. Mm-hmm. And um, the most important one, as I've understood it, is something called the Garden State Parkway. Um, it would certainly be the most important in my mind. Now, there are people who are turnpike people, but we don't need to deal with that. Right. Now. Okay. Well, so being a Garden State Parkway kind of guy, can you tell me, please, how many exits there are off of the Garden State Parkway? How many exits there are off the parkway? Yes. How many exits are maintained off the Garden Gosh. State Parkway, please? Two. Oh, I... it feels like it must be around. I mean, I've, I I think about how far north. It feels like maybe maybe the parkway tops off in the one eight, in the one eighties or nineties, maybe two hundred. But no, I don't think I can think of an exit to anything. So probably in the one eighties or nineties. Uh no. No, there are three hundred and sixty five exits. Both ways. I 
I didn't break it down. The the New Jersey Transit Authority informs me that there are 365 exits off of the Garden State Parkway. No, there. that's not right. It what is right. Mean, I took it off their website today. No, what they mean is – what did you say, 365? Exits off of the Garden State Parkway. Yeah, what they mean is that there are – like like my exit is – I would get off either at 135 or 137. And I can get off at 135 northbound or 135 southbound depending on which way I was going on the thing. That's what they mean. There have got to be 182 numbered exits of the parkway. Well, that's not what they say on the, trans, the, on the New Jersey Transit Authority website. No, I just don't think you're reading it appropriately. I just don't think you're reading it correctly. Yeah. You, you see, you're getting all aggressive and stiff, <laughs> just like a Jersey guy. It. Anyway. Because, I mean, it just this doesn't make any sense. It's got to stop in the 180s. And the 365 actually affirms that, doesn't it? Because 365 over 2 is, what, 100 and something? Whatever. 80 something. Okay. Uh, J.D., as, as you often like to say you have watched – um, a, a famous reality TV show, scripted reality TV show based in New Jersey is, of course, The Sopranos. Double Dare? Yeah. Um, which is, as near <laughs> as I can tell, fairly slightly cartoonishly sure. exaggerated, but more or less true to life uh, sure. for New Jersey. Um, but I wonder if you could tell me the name of the New Jersey crime family that The Sopranos are based on. What is the New Jersey crime family, the mafia family that runs the Garden State? What What is... What real life family is the yeah. are the Soprano family based upon? Yeah. What is the what is the New Jersey crime family's actual name? What is what are they? They're not the Sopranos in real life. I, I don't. I know very little about organized crime. Gambino. No, they're they're a New York family. Um, That's what I thought. No, the New Jersey crime family, JD, is the De Cavalcante family. Oh, okay. Sticking to oh, yeah. sticking to nicknames, though. Uh, which is our sort of loose theme today. You're probably, since you didn't even know the Cavalcante family, uh, you're probably not going to... I never got into the Sopranos. I, didn't, I don't care for the Sopranos. Okay. Well, the, do you, can you tell me the current um, name and or nickname of the boss, the current boss of the Cavalcante crime family, please? Uh, Who runs the Cavalcante crime family? It would be, uh, it would be kind of, it, it would be a cool sort of full circle thing if his nickname were like Jimmy the Soprano Divocante. So that's what we're going to go with. The Soprano. That would be funny. Uh, it's not. It's, awesome. in fa- it's in fact Charles uh, Maguri who is who enjoys the nickname Big Ears. Hey, Big Ears. Charlie Big Ears. Uh, runs, hey, man, runs I really like seeing James Gandolfino play you. You understand? Yeah. He was really, God rest him. James um, Gandolfino died, right? From bosses to bosses, J.D., uh, which popular New Jersey songwriter enjoys the nickname The Boss? Yeah, got it. Springsteen. Springsteen, right. Um, you know, I went to college with a girl. It's funny because I didn't know her in New Jersey, although one time I went to her house. I went to college with a girl who lived in Spring Lake, which is a town in Springfield that Springsteen lives in. And she lived kind of like around the corner from Springsteen. So um, obviously she was – her family was doing all right. That's great. Um, Not like where Springsteen was from, but where, you, you know. Right. Um, okay. Well, so on the subject of the boss, Mr. Springsteen, um, J.D., can you name uh, a single real job that the quote-unquote boss has done in his life? Uh, yeah, he is a spokesman for Jeep. <laughs> okay, yes, I suppose that's true. He is an ad man for Jeep. Uh, yeah, but I meant is. prior a, to his a, musical he's a, career. He's a, a, a hard-scrabble guy. He's a hard-scrabble guy, J.D. He's constantly talking about the working man and his blue-collar roots and all this stuff. So um, prior to him finding fame as a, as a musician. Oh, did Springsteen – what did Springsteen do for yeah, a living? What did, what did the boss do to, you know, to merit this, uh, this somewhat workplace-related nickname? I'm not convinced that he ever had a job. Uh, you're, you're not wrong, really. I mean, he – Aside him, from that Jeep thing. He has himself said the – and I'm quoting here. The only honest work I've done in my entire life was as a lawn boy when I was 14. 
Um, oh, okay. There well. is some evidence that he was a not very successful or diligent um, painter of houses and tarer of roofs during the summers of his teenage years. But yes, huh. you are essentially correct in saying that Bruce Springsteen has never done an honest day's work in his entire life, and his entire musical stylings uh, are fraudulent, <laughs> and that he is as fake as The Sopranos. Hey, we get it, we get it, we get it. Okay, all right. Hey, leave, just bonus you know, point, JD. Um, lay off the bus. Bon- bonus point, JD. Uh, how many studio uh, albums? Taylor Ham. Has uh, has Bruce Springsteen? How many produced? albums has Bruce no, Springsteen put out? Studio albums, studio albums. Yeah, not counting live ones, concert albums, things like that. Studio albums. Well, twenty. Yes, fifteen. Well done. Twenty. Twenty exactly. Well done. Wow. Cool. Okay, uh, we're going to change gear a little bit here, JD, and just do you some New Jersey slang, nicknameish. Oh, yeah. We've so, done that for England before, your your, yeah. your homeland. Okay. So, J.D., what is a shooby? I have no idea. A shooby? You don't know what a shooby is? A shooby no. is, I'm told, a seaside day tripper uh, who ruins the Jersey Shore on a summer's afternoon and that they are probably from Philadelphia. Oh, a Benny. No. Uh, Benny's another one. So, well done. We're, you don't have shooby, but you've got Benny. Can you tell me, please, what is a Benny? Uh, I thought a Benny was a person who went down the shore from Philadelphia. No. Oh, you see, I have to take the point away from you for Benny now, because a Benny is actually... Comes from New York. It's actually an, it's actually an acrostic. It's um, someone from Bayonne, Elizabeth, Newark, or New York. Benny. Bayonne, Elizabeth, Newark, or New York. I am a Benny. Well... I see. I'm a Benny. I I, yeah. I I knew it was a pejorative. It I is a pejorative. They were yelling at someone else. Benny is a bad thing. I thought they were yelling at someone else. Yeah, no, I'm a Benny because it's a, it's what they say if you're if you're down the shore. Yeah. you know, like people down the shore. This is what frustrates me about people down the shore. Ed, they live down the shore, and effectively, their entire life is su- sustained by the fact that. You know, Shoebies and pennies come and drop their money. Right, exactly. Like we were willing to drop, you know, eight dollars for that giant slice of pizza or whatever, and their dad's like, "This giant slice of pizza put food on our table." Um, this is what frustrates me about it. Is then and then there's resentment. I mean, come on, you know. I understand. Shoebies and pennies put food on their table. That's, put them, kept them, and that's fair. Uh, JD, in the state of New Jersey, what does it mean to hit the mac? Get some cash from a yes. From a, well yeah. done. Well done. Uh-huh. Yeah, I thought it might have some other meaning. Isn't that a common thing? I gotta, I've i never heard it before. Apparently, Mac is the company that operates most ATMs in the state of New Jersey, or at least parts of yeah, northern yeah. New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And so people refer to ATMs as Macs. Go figure. Yeah, I didn't, I've been saying that to people from other regions. Perhaps they have no idea what I'm talking about. This is often the case with people from New Jersey talking to outsiders. Um, Indeed. Okay. JD, what are disco fries? Oh, disco fries. Okay. So disco fries have – there are a variety of fries, as you know, and I th- – Disco fries have either cheese and gravy or uh, red sauce and cheese, but I can't remember which at the moment. Pizza fries probably have. I think it's cheese and gravy. You are correct. Disco fries are fries with cheese and gravy. Uh, JD, a tomato pie is a sauce-forward version of pizza, which is uh, particularly in vogue in and comes from what New Jersey town or city? I thought of tomato pie as a Philadelphia thing. I'm told it's not. So, I'm told it's a Jersey thing. If it's a Jersey thing, I would presume it would be either like Trenton, Camden, or South Jersey, because I think of it as a Philadelphia thing. Well, you are correct. It's a South Jersey thing, and I will give you the point, because the first answer was correct. It is from Trenton. Hey. And finally, JD, what is a ripper? A, a, a wave with a riptide? No. 
No, I'm told that a ripper a, is, and this is a North well, give Jersey. Me in. I want to get it. Give, give, give me in. Um, gosh. Okay. Uh, a ripper is the sort of thing you might order if you were worried that you hadn't experienced indigestion powerfully enough recently. Is it a cal- some kind of a calzone? No. Can you use it in a sentence? Sure. Um, one thing every God-fearing native son of Chicago would agree is that a ripper has no place in this city's, in Chicago's preferred uh, best food product. Hot dog with cheese and onions? You, you are correct. It's a version of a hot dog. It is, in fact, a deep-fried hot dog. Oh, that's not really, that's not, I don't, that's not something from New Jersey. Yeah, it is. It's from Rutt's Hut in Clifton, and it is apparently a, it is on common on menus of a certain kind of establishment in Northern Jersey. Rippers oh, are you know what, do you know what the grease trucks are? No. I think they got rid no, of the No, I know what trucks, the grease trucks are. Those are, those are the mob-owned trash collecting companies that don't <laughs> no, actually. No, 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 no. No, actually, trash is a public utility in most of New Jersey. Um. Uh, uh, grease trucks, I think they actually, for some reason, I think the university got rid of them, but there used to be this parking lot at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, um, which had all these food trucks in them at which you could get any number of deep fried things, or you could get like a hamburger with mozzarella sticks on it and Taylor ham, you know, Taylor ham and stuff like that, uh, or a pretty good Taylor ham, egg and cheese at any time and those kinds of things. So I, I wonder if a ripper comes from the grease trucks, uh, but, but that's not something that I know. Well, uh, that, that could be. But anyway, JD, well done. You um, you scored seven out of thirteen. Thank you. So you're over halfway, which um, you know, and I've been away. I've been away for a long time. I, I, well, and I think a seven out of thirteen is. I, I think if my if All my knowledge of local for. slang is correct, that's referred to as a Mount Claire A. And you, <laughs> you liked that, didn't you? Yeah, that's true. I. I, I, I presume you're talking about Montclair University. Montclair State University, which actually is my favorite educational institution. Every time you say Montclair, it makes me feel like you're far more English and fancy than I, because I've never heard anyone say Montclair in their life. I really admire that. Um, I like the uh, place because they have a great, um, they share a baseball ground with, yeah, a with great the New Jersey tri- Jackals. Yeah, yeah, the Jackals, who are an independent yeah. league yeah. team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, but they're not, it's not the, uh, it's not the Atlantic League. There's some other, it's like a lower... Uh, no, they're triple A. They're triple A equivalent. At least last time I went to go and see them. Oh, were. okay, we could be. I, I, okay, it's I the know, it's the Cam Am League. I think they're playing in right now. Yeah, that's right. That is exactly right. That's right. Yeah. And anyway, it doesn't matter. Um. Anyway, cool. well done, JD. I'm. Uh, yeah, you, that's right. You know and more actually, things I reject, than you I think I did, about. I think Jersey. I did better than seven out of thirteen because I totally reject that BS of the Parkway thing, and we'll get to the bottom of that. <laughs> in the meantime, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host. And Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I've been coming to you from New Jersey. Actually, no, Ed's been coming to you. Ed's been coming to you from New Jersey, um, but kind of fancy New Jersey, so they don't talk like that. Uh, and uh, my podcasting partner is Ed Condon, and thank you again for subscribing. And if you would like to support the work of The Pillar here and at PillarCatholic.com, go to PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. Adios. Adios.